<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. podcast. Hey everyone, it's Mike here. Elaine should be back in the next episode, and I have to say we have some excellent guest book for the months to come. Today I spoke with Dr. Eric Chen. Uh, I actually got him immediately before he climbed Mount Fuji, so I think he packed immediately after the episode. Eric is a bioinformatician, which means he works with very large data sets and has more of a mathematical background and mathematical mind than many of the guests that we've had on. So different perspective, different paradigm, different way of doing science, and I really enjoyed our conversation. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Eric Chen. For anyone listening who doesn't know you, could you describe your work and what you're currently interested in? Okay, um, so my name is Eric. I'm a postdoc researcher. Uh, I'm a bioinformatician working on uh, genome evolution as well as uh, comparative genomics. I started out with the plant genomes and now I'm using a fungi to do my uh, study. So what does that mean to, to study the genome? Like you're, are you studying the genome at a bird's eye view? You're trying to zoom out and see why we have the genomes we have, the chromosomes we have? Um, yeah, that's a good way to look at it because uh, I mostly do a whole genome comparison. So I compare the entire genome of one species to the other. For, for an undergrad or a master's student listening who does work on cells or work on, on snakes in the field and doesn't know genome stuff very well, what, what, how would you describe it to them? Um, I would describe them as... Uh, how uh, genomes evolve, so the change in number of genes, also the, uh, the ursula, so genes that share the same as origin. So some genome might lose some function while some other gain some functions. They will specialize in their uh, particular ecosystem or niche. And uh, so what I do is not only look at uh, what's still present, what's left, but also uh, the synteny the order of these genes. So has there been a lot of scrambling in a given genome or has there, are they more or less the same? Have they gone undergone a whole genome duplication or are they, uh, or can we just only detect very ancient uh, signals? More specifically, I might, I'm mostly focused on the, uh, the polyploid evolution. So really on how after a genome gets completely duplicated sometimes through a hybridization, then how does that change uh, in terms of the trajectory of the evolution? Like what happens in the long term, like 50, 100 million years? And uh, because this, is, this process is actually quite common in the, in the world. Yeah, so for example, the wheat that we have uh, is uh, six ends. That's actually six copies. Whereas humans, we are two ends, one from mom, one from dad. And then the, there's banana is an interesting one. It's only, it has three, three copies. So that's why also why it doesn't have seeds. Wait, wait. So how does that relate to seeds? Uh, because uh, usually during a meiosis, you have to evenly divide. And uh, that function is uh, disrupted in banana due to, in part due to the, the three and uh, structure, quality level. And so as a result, like we can, you can see the hint of the seeds, like the black stuff when you open up 
banana in the center. That's essentially the uh, the C coding that failed to develop. So okay, so that's why bananas don't have seeds is because they they fail at meiosis over and over. That's really cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. Okay, well we'll jump into more of genome duplication later on, mm -hmm. and you're working fungus and okay. fungi and, and plants. So kind of want to know where you started in research and what inspired you for what you're currently doing. What inspired you to be a scientist? Ever since I was little, I, I always did like science these things. So I always always knew that I wanted to go into research. I just didn't really know what kind of research. I was really my undergrad, uh, probably third year, fourth year, when I really started into the bioinformatics at uh, Simon Fraser University. That was uh, early 2000s. So that's when sequencing technology starts to become available. And uh, so there was a lot of excitement on what we could do, potentially do. And what is bioinformatics? In short, bioinformatics is uh, big data on uh, biological data. The data, especially these days, uh, is way too big to be analyzed by hand anymore. Bioinformatics is also about describing the data that you have and then extracting information from it that you might otherwise not notice. There's uh, ecolog ecological analysis fields or uh, genomic, which is what I do, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I do like programming as well. So that was also another big uh, draw for me to go into the bioinformatics. Mm. That's really cool. Uh, so do you also work at a company in Taiwan? I, and you on your LinkedIn, it showed that you worked at Everlight Chemical in Taiwan. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, from a great program from Simon Fraser University, which is a co-op. Okay. Uh, so starting from third year, you can then try to find placements where you can work either in four months, eight months, or one full year. And uh, you, to basically to let you see on whether you would actually like the field. And I think for undergrad, it was, uh, it's a very nice program. And I did really like it because I spent time doing the in the pharmaceutical R and D and then the quality assurance department. And I actually learned that organic chemistry can be quite fun. Like, uh, like for example, like very Lego like of making new products, as well as uh, optimization of synthesis and purification steps. Wait, so Lego-like, like you're you're taking different active chemicals, chemicals we know have a, a feature or function, and you're just like mixing them together like they're Lego pieces? Kind of. So you know you will have a, like a final product in mind, like a final medication, and you have the chemical structure of it. So you have a lot of starting material or like a pseudo that's very close by. So how do you go from that to the final product? You have to add protection, so to prevent, say, a particular carboxyl group to prevent from being modified, while you're adding a new uh, R group or amino group elsewhere, and you have to, uh, so that's why it's a very Lego-like, it's just a very precise. Uh, for instance, you have to a lot of thinkable, so that was, that was fun. That's kind of cool. That's such a, a bioinformatics way to approach chemistry too. <laughs> like you're yeah. trying to simplify it into these general trends, right? So I, I like it. 
Um, well, let's talk more about bioinformatics then. So after your undergrad at Simon Fraser in BC, then you went to UOttawa and did a PhD in the math department, not the biology department, but the math department. Can you describe that a bit? Um, yeah, so I was looking for uh, PhD programs and uh, the professor, uh, uh, David Senkov was highly regarded and I applied to join his labs. And uh, also I did join through the mass, uh, sorry, through the bio department, but everyone else there was uh, mostly mathematics or computing science. So I was a very uh, bio, per one of the only bio persons in the lab. So that's that's pretty interesting. You you were an outsider then in that group. Did that train you in any way? Did that give you any extra insight that you now take to your career in biology? Uh, it did. It definitely changed how I looked at uh, not only the field of mathematics, but also on uh, modeling uh, biological data. So I researched Dr. David Sankoff, your PhD supervisor, a little bit. And on his Wikipedia page, there's a claim that he was responsible for transforming bioinformatics, I'm quoting, from a stamp collection of ill-defined problems into a rigorous discipline with important biological applications. So your PhD supervisor had helped to, to make bioinformatics. So also to give us some kind of background, David was already a professor. He was mostly in uh, linguistics. At the time when uh, Watson and Crick published the DNA structure, one of the earliest contributions from him to the bioinformatics field was actually uh, using the uh, uh, methods, the algorithm that they developed for linguistic comparison to take that method and then use it to compare how different like two uh, nucleotide sequences are. And that would become, that would be one of the first few algorithms when you want to do align uh, two DNA sequences. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, what would you say is your elevator pitch for a new bioinformatician? I would say find what you're interested in because bioinformatics, especially these days, is a very big field, that very broad. It's almost like uh, asking, like, elevator pitch for a new uh, biologist so one of the first things that would tell uh, a potential new uh, bioinformat bioinformatician is uh, what they like to do so whether they want to stay focused more on the bio side so to use the tools developed through the fields of bioinformatics to analyze biological data, to analyze medical data, or they could go through the more tool development. So that's more computing science, uh, maybe uh, probably more of mathematics side as well, because the data is very big. So you have to take, you have to really design your analysis pattern, the, the infrastructure, so you can actually analyze and not crash the computer. So do you think then that bioinformatics is, is especially useful for biology because of how messy the data is and how, how noisy it is? Yes. Yeah. And uh, you, yeah, there's bioinformatics is very useful because uh, at this point, uh, like say, it's, it's very noisy and uh, sometimes the effect that you're looking for uh, is very small. And uh, so one way is to increase uh, 
the amount of samples that earn the points, data points, but sometimes that's just not realistic. Mm. And so you end up having to use a bit more specialized or more special statistics that try to take into account of these things. And uh, But you have to be very careful on what you're doing mm. to make sure the assumption that those models or those methods are still valid. And so that's why I think for, for most of the biology students, that you should definitely at least learn some bioinformatics. So you're not just summarizing big data sets, you're also extrapolating from data sets that you want to be bigger or that might be bigger. You're, you're kind of like, you know, filling in some blanks or, or, or adding. Yeah. yeah, perfect. Well, let's jump into some details then. So you have a 2013 paper in DMC Bioinformatics that you, you, in which you analyzed polyploids and you saw what they did with extra copies of their genes. So it, if I have this right, it sounds like species can copy their genomes. It's happened many times throughout evolution. Um, so you, you help to hint at what they do with those extra copies? Um, yeah, it's more of a, a general uh, a survey on what these uh, species or these ancestral species may, may have done. Uh, because in clients, this has, has been quite a, quite a lot over the uh, on the evolutionary time scale. And uh, there's always the question on how or why these plants get so diverse. I think it's sometimes referred to as the Darwin's abominable mystery. Hmm. So this was uh, at the time of Darwin when he realized how much the plants have diversified in an almost explosion pattern. And at the time, he couldn't really explain why or what drive this rapid uh, uh, diversification or speciation. In the more recent decades, one of the hypotheses that explains this is uh, polypoidization, which is doubling or tripling of the genome. So the idea was that uh, if you have multiple copies of the same gene, then as long as one copy is functioning, then the rest are free to evolve. And that uh, because of how seemingly often this may happen for plants, then maybe this was a driving factor. So my research, my, or that particular paper that dealt with the, uh, a general survey between two uh, lineage, of the plants, the roses and the asteroids. And uh, basically to compare like uh, on top of being duplicated, is there a particular functional significance to what is being, uh, may have been diversifying faster or ones that are kind of being forced to retain these extra copies for, uh, for other reasons. Yeah. Sorry, can you elaborate on the last point? Ones that are forced to keep their copies? Uh, forced to keep other copies as in that they remain in duplicated form. So maybe these uh, genes are too essential that uh, to elaborate further elaborate on that, uh, there's this uh, gene balance hypothesis, which says that uh, gene products, they need to maintain their stock geometry ratio. So you can, if your original is one gene to one gene to make a functional product, then after duplication, you may you always need to maintain that ratio. So two and two, three and three, and as such, like 
uh, the extra copy does not get the chance to uh, evolve into something new. Okay, okay. So let's say that there's a an important protein that the cell needs to get fat into the it's to, to get fat inside to consume fat. Right. And let's say there are two subunits for this protein. Then you might need both genes to be working at the same ratio. And if you just double one, then that'll mess up the whole fat intake process. Is that kind of what you're saying? It kind like of, yeah. But this tend to be more uh, specific. It tends to involve in the, the actual signaling path pathways, especially when it has to do with uh, like binding to the DNA itself. And because a lot of the signal transduction factors, uh, especially the nuclear bound one, they tend to require multiple proteins coming together to form a working complex. So if the concentration of these proteins change in the cell, then that could mess up on how things are, uh, are assembled. Okay, so another way, I guess, to phrase that would be that if you change the concentrations of genes, if you just double some genes, you might be changing the amount of proteins, and that can do a bunch of different things to cells. So yeah. sometimes that's a big problem, but sometimes you're saying that it actually gives the chance to um, have redundancy, and then you can just change one of those genes for a beneficial purpose. Yes. So, yeah, so it's... So, uh, it just depends on what kind of exact function it does and how tolerant it is to disruption. So the main study, the main study for the paper was to investigate the, the fates of genes that were duplicated. So in plants, or in, actually in most species, but especially in plants, uh, they undergo uh, a process called whole genome duplication, where everything is double. But obviously, the, the species, the organism doesn't need all of those genes to survive. So they usually get lost sometimes very rapidly, but some also uh, uh, evolve into new functions. For genes that, that remain in duplicated forms, uh, like what functions are they involved in? Are there any particular mechanism that can explain why they remain in duplicate form? Like, why are they not lost? Why does this organ no, just have multiple copies that seems to do the same thing? So this is one of your first bioinformatics papers. Can you describe the bioinformatics you use to approach this question? We first do something called the orsolog assignment. So we try to use a sequence similarity defined to which genes might be from the same, we might have the same ancestor. Okay, so then... Um... After you make this gene family tree, then what did you do with that family tree afterwards? Uh, for me, it was more suppose so I basically counted on how many of these uh, groups, also groups that remain have uh, in either full on duplicates or in, they're in duplicate form in all species. How many of them are in a partial duplication state? So some have been lost, some, but some still in duplicated form. And finally, how many of these genes are completely, uh, or they have been lost, the duplicates are all gone, they are now single copies again. So I essentially classify them into these uh, three categories. And for each category or for each article, I then look at their functions through something called uh, gene ontology, which is uh, defined uh, 
vocabulary on a, on what a gene does or what a biological functions. So I didn't look at the statistics as to whether again any given uh, function is enriched in uh, these orso groups or not. Okay, so so you took this family tree and you looked at all the the <clears throat> you looked at all those genes and then you tried to divide them into three groups. So the genes were either duplicated and kept as a duplicate, or they're duplicated and they have changed just a bit. They've they've uh, evolved in some way, or they're lost. And you tried to ask what types of genes would get into which categories. Is that do I have that right? Uh, yes, but the middle category is uh, some can be singletons. Singletons. So one, so in one species they only have one copy, but the other genes, you know, they still have two or three copies. Okay. Example. Interesting. Um, okay, and then you did gene ontology, which means that you're trying to find out what the purpose of those genes is, as if to say, are genes that are related to, uh, you know, metabolism, for example, um, yeah. more likely to be in one category than the other. And what did you find? And uh, what we found in that paper was that if a gene, gene or genes that are involved in signal transduction, especially in the uh, transcription factors, so signals to the DNA itself, then mm. those tends to be maintained in duplicate forms. Whereas genes that are more involved in the me metabolism, they say uh, digesting sugars, then those tends to be lost faster. They either the diverge to new genes, become new genes, that, so that we cannot find this or solve this relationship anymore, mm. or they were simply lost and become a single copy genes. That's fascinating. So th that describes what happens to genes after they're duplicated. Do you know why genomes duplicate in the first place? Um, yes. So some of them is simply just due to uh, mistakes in meiosis. So in plants, uh, you can actually induce this like relatively very easily. That's that's fascinating. So, uh, just zooming out a little bit, are there any differences between different domains of life, like comparing fungi and plants and animals? Like you, you seem to have done this work in plants. Is there a reason you chose plants, and do you think it would be interesting to look at the other domains of life later on? Uh, yes. So at the time when I started this. Uh, project uh, there were simply not many genomes available to do this research because that was when uh, Illumina was only starting to get to over 200 base pairs in terms of sequencing so genome, genome project was still very expensive then so outside of the very important uh, like, uh, model organisms like mice uh, Drosophila, yeast, or even humans, uh, there was not many available for the many domains of life. The only other domains that were people were willing to spend the money to do these sequencing was in plants because of agriculture. So yeah, so we look at like peaches, uh, grapes, um, Arabidopsis was one because of its model. That's fascinating. So do you know anything about genome duplication in general, or genome duplication in plants and other in my PhD, I've worked with goldfish and with trout. Yeah, both species are polyploid. And I remember one time at a conference, someone came up to me who was also working on polyploidy. He was really interested in these two species because they just happened to have very large cells. He made a claim to me that larger 
um, genomes mean larger cells. Um, I'm just curious if there's any other effect of polyploidy and, and if it's, it tends to show up more in the plant world than the animal world. What are your thoughts on that? So I would say mouse is probably the main one where there's a lot less, uh, there's almost no uh, polyploidization. Mammals don't have, don't, mammals are yeah. mostly not polyploid. Okay. Yeah. So we have very strict in terms of the, uh, how many chromosomes, how many, the polyploid liver is much more stable. Hmm. So as, as you, since you work on fish, so the, uh, another example will be the, uh, the salmonids, are they charred, the other salmon. So those are very unstable as well. So salmonids like salmon and trout and architecture. Yeah. Yeah. So those have varying degree. And uh, so fungi can also have this. So there was a, a paper, a project done by uh, Sarah Otto in UBC, where uh, they induce a uh, where they force the polypoidization, polypoids in the East, regular East. Yeah, so, okay, so I guess a quick background. Induced polypoidy is basically you basically force them to make mistakes in the meiosis. Mm. So after you double your genetic material, they don't segregate. Okay. And as such, one of the gametes or uh, one of the cells now has more. And so back to the... Uh, the experiment done by out of UBC, Auto uh, So they were able to force this, and then what they found is that if you are under a stress condition, in, in the in their case with salt, then they can observe the loss of these genes, but uh, but they will be lost at a slower rate. Really? So so they have a different response to the uh, the more challenging environment. Compared to the uh, the regular uh, the haploid or the diploid phase, yeah. And why would that be? So it, intuitively, it feels like you wouldn't want to spend all this extra energy to make more genes when you're duplicating, or maybe you wouldn't want to have all these other genes in the way, right, of, of your regular function. Like if any, more things could probably go wrong, right? What's the reason to during times of stress to to maintain those, those extra genes? So there's some uh, immediate effects. So you mentioned uh, like larger cells. So that is one typical effect of polypoidy. And uh, sometimes when you have a larger volume, like your surface to cytoplasm ratio changes. And that somehow then that's able to, so you can maintain your liquid better than if you were cell were smaller. So that was one, and uh, the other ones were. Uh, the other one is uh, that uh, it almost feels uh, like a paradox because, like you said, like having a double gene means that you're spending a lot more resource making all these genes. Yeah, and uh, most of the natural polypoids do die, like because they are not able to reproduce. So we, then they have to find a new mate that can be compatible. Ah, and, uh, so it's not just a resource cost for duplicating yeah. double the genetic material, but also it limits the amount of sexual partners, I guess, for a species. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but obviously, but when you look at long evolutionary 
history, especially in France, that they have one, they all seem to share the same uh, polypolization event at the very base of the uh, uh, the flowering genomes, the angiosperms. So that means that it must have been very useful or very advantageous. That's at some point because flowering plants all flower, right? So it, it kind of makes sense that the species that have sexual reproduction would also have more genome diversity, right? Like if, if you duplicate, then you'd have these redundant genes to just evolve and change. And then they can share them quickly because they're flowering plants. Does that make sense? Is that, is that the reason why flowering plants have more genome duplication? Um, somewhat, but it's also because flowering plants, a lot of them can also do selfing. Selfing. So, that's, so that is one hypothesis on why it's more common in Self. plants, even oh. in the natural. So they basically, yeah, so instead of finding a different sexual partner, they can uh, fertilize themselves. And then that kind of solves the uh, not finding a partner <laughs> problem. And that may give them a better chance of having uh, established as uh, their own uh, niche. And then from then, from there, then they can respond to uh, the newer environmental adaptations. That's fascinating. Okay, well, if there, is there anything else that you'd like to share from your PhD? Any other stories or papers or projects that you really liked? Um, one thing was basically how I changed, it changed, really changed how I think about mathematics. Because uh, I, before that, I always knew that it was important, it's useful, but uh, it was really worth going through David's lab when I really realized like, how wide reaching things can be on how much you can use it for. Uh, for example, uh, he had a paper in the 1990s which essentially does something that's, that allow, allows what Shazam does. You Shazam. play music, yeah. And that was in 1990. And uh, it allows a lot of flexibility on the kind of research that, that you can do. Like David went from linguistics to bioinformatics and uh, he still does some uh, linguistic stuff, but the fact that He's really good at the mathematics that really allows people, uh, allows him to really do a, 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 wide, a wider breadth of research. That's really cool. You're smiling a lot right now too, which means this is something that probably really interests you. Something that kind of hits me about this is that I see a divide in researchers. So some researchers, some researchers have told me that the way to do research well is to choose a question and learn any techniques you need to get the answer to that question. Yeah, they say, don't get too specific with one technique, use many techniques to answer that one question. But then I know other people that have been highly specialized in a really difficult technique and they've worked on many different projects. So for example, people who do patch clamp, I don't know if you know that technique, it's so difficult um, what you're actually doing is, is sort of like when you're recording an EEG from the brain or an EKG from the heart, you're sort of doing that with one cell. And it's so difficult to have a little glass pipette make out with a cell without actually damaging it. 
and to get electrical signals from one cell. Like the, you see in a textbook, you get an actual potential. Usually that's from patch clamp recordings, but those are so technically difficult that I've seen many people just drop out of, of grad school because they had trouble with the technique. Um, so many patch clampers seem to do patch clamp for uh, many different projects and they kind of like adapt their project to make sense, uh, like to, to, to work with the technique they know. So basically project first or technique first. And I, I've seen more people suggest that you should go project first. It sounds like you're actually focusing more on the technique, your tools, I guess, like you have a, a mathematical toolbox and you can use it in many places you're saying. Mm. Yeah, I'm definitely more on the, the technique focused. But, uh, but then again, because mathematics is a, as a discipline is much more, uh, it's very broad as well. But uh, being good at general mathematics uh, will help you uh, or can help you um, approach your problem differently. So it might give you some newer ideas on how to uh, solve or to tackle a particular uh, question that you want to address. So it's not a hundred percent technique, but then it's a very nice tool to have in your toolbox as you tackle your project. It occurs to me that the people who are project first, the people who suggest that you should just learn techniques as you need them to answer your questions, probably can't spend five or six years learning a technique. Some mathematicians I know take a long time to learn their math. And it doesn't, it's not a frivolous thing to learn to code. Like you, you need to devote a long time to it. So I, I feel like you're an advocate for the technique first side from what you've done. And it's based on how you describe it. I'm actually more on the project side, but then because I've switched projects throughout my uh, research career, mm. I didn't have a different skills or uh, different things that I learned, different techniques. So in, in a way, I guess bioinformatics is not one tool, but a lot of people who don't use it probably do lump it all together. They're like all those math people, all those database people, they're doing database things rather than the multiple different mathematical tools you're doing. Yeah, I guess yeah, I could think of it. Yeah. yeah, I'll probably cut all that. Anyways, <laughs> just <laughs> fooling around. Yeah. Okay, let's let's move on. So next, you worked with Dr. Nicholas Cordy at the University of Ottawa. Uh, he's in the biology department there, and I think he studies parasitic fungi and bacteria. But please correct me if I'm wrong. Could you describe your project in that lab? So he also does. Uh, well, it's not quite parasitic, but uh, there there are parasitic fungi. Although I did not work on that particular project. Uh, the one I worked on was most on the soil fungi. It's called the uh, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So they form symbiosis in the roots where they form uh, arbuscules, but inside the, the plant roots. So they help plants get nutrients from the soil, right? I think they increase the yes. area of the roots and then many plants need them to survive. Uh, they don't explicitly need them to survive, but then uh, they will help. Although it also depends on what kind, because there's it's also it's a very large group of fungi. So some will be better than the others, but uh, in general, yes, they form this symbiosis relation where they trade uh, 
nitrogen and uh, phosphates for uh, carbon from the uh, plants. So what was your project in the lab? Uh, so I was working on a more uh, compared genomes project. So these fungi, uh, they are uh, very weird. So one of my project was uh, to compare the genomic structure and the gene content between the various strains that we have available for this, uh, this group of fungi of this particular uh, model species. And uh, what I then found was that uh, they're actually quite different and that uh, even between strains that were collected in the same field, uh, the genome structure is actually quite different and uh, that they have huge, they can have huge stretches of gene, genes, genetic material that are present in few strains but completely absent in the other. And uh, people have suggested like calling them a species complex as opposed to species with different strains. And uh, that's so fascinating. So in, in a given field, if you get fungus that are, are connected through the soil, some people argue that they're actually potentially multiple different species or they're a complex of species rather than just one species altogether. Yes, in that uh, even though from a morphology standpoint, and from most of the genetic standpoint that they are the same species, but uh, there's enough differences between the strings that if people were to start calling them as a species conquest, that that uh, that they might be a an okay uh, nomenclature. Like I could I can see how people would uh, the community research community might decide on that later. Let's get into a specific paper then. So in 2018, you had an eLife paper um, that found so-called asexual species can actually show genetic recombination, right? The study of this fungi has been quite controversial over the last few decades, two, three decades. And uh, in part because of how different or how much diversity that you can find between the strains. And uh, so these fungi, well, it's also not unique to just these fungi, but uh, some of the fungi they have been suggested to have uh, some sort of sexual reproduction-like life cycle, but it's never observed. And uh, because of the earlier uh, projects, projects before me, um, where we we do find these uh, huge differences that's better or that can be better explained by a sexual like uh, reproduction cycle. And so this the specific the specific project that I work on the the Eli paper we try to look at the whether there's actually uh, inter uh, intra intra-isolate uh, recombination because these uh, species are multinucleated. So what I mean by that is uh, in the petri dish, once we've grown them, uh, the hyphen network, they're all connected. So the cytoplasm is completely shared. There's, because uh, in typical uh, filamentous fungi, you have this thing called septa that divide the separates between cells. So you can still make out, like this is a single cell with a nuclei. And so, but not in these uh, AMFs, the operational microhydro fungi, where mm. everything is shared is effectively one individual 
with multiple nucleus that can diffuse from one end all the way to the other. So, so okay, so these fungi are not as segmented as other fungi. And that means that in one quote unquote cell, then you'd have many different nuclei. And I guess the, the postulate there, the idea there is that these nuclei might actually change genetic material, kind of like uh, sexual recombination. Yes, uh, yeah, because uh, in the more recent year, I guess, so the poster before me, uh, John Ropars, uh, so she found that uh, the diversity, other than like there's huge variation between strength, but there's also very, there's two distinct classes of these isolates mm. strings. One is, uh, they call, we call it the uh, homocarin. So every nuclei is more or less the same within that individual. And then the other is uh, the heterocarion, like which uh, you have two distinct nuclei uh, haplotides inside the same individual. And they're roughly in the 50-50 ratio coexisting with each other. Mm. And so then my eLife paper then uh, is to a follow-up on that work is to see for the one in the heterocarion-like uh, isolates where the, I can see uh, recombination or potential recombination between the nuclei, as that may explain the huge diversity that we see in the field. That's fascinating. Let's move on to the next question. So now you're at the University of Tokyo. What was your project there? Uh, so my project here actually uh, links much more to my PhD project, which is a study of the polypoid evolution. And uh, I joined one of the biggest uh, attractions for me that attracted me to this lab was uh, the fungal specimen that they had, the prior research that they had. Because they found uh, some fungi that had there were hybrids, so they were uh, polypoid, but at the same time, uh, they haven't lost a lot of their genes yet. Mm. So they were kind of in this uh, middle-ish phase. And that was very interesting to me because for most of the polypoid studies, they were either very fresh and stable polypoids, for example, apple and wheat, or they were uh, normal diploid where the polypoidization even happened a long time ago, like grapes. So this is sort of so a stock zone that can help you answer questions that the other two groups couldn't. Yeah, I wanted to see uh, what kind of patterns that they could tell me. Mm. And that's why I came. That's so what, my main project. So what questions are you asking with this species? So I want to see like for the intermediate, for these are intermediates, like how different, like do I still see the same patterns of functional enrichment as before? And uh, are there any difference in terms of uh, methylation or like some genetic structure? Uh, whether they have maybe different fitness uh, challenges or uh, benefits compared to their closest uh, uh, undeployed and, and polypoidized uh, relative. So Eric, it hits me that you have a very international science career. So you've done science work in Taiwan. You've done work in Canada and both ends of Canada. I would say that BC and Ottawa have a very different culture. 
Uh, and then you went to Japan, which is certainly different than all those three. So what, what do you have any advice for people who want to start a new position abroad? Conferences. So especially now that there's things are starting to open up again, definitely go to them. It's one of the best ways to uh, meet potential new uh, labs that you might want to join. And then uh, also look for grants. Uh, there is actually quite a bit of uh, grants available for international postdocs, even within Canada. So each uh, country have their own grants for uh, to attract uh, foreign postdocs as well. So for example, I came to Japan with uh, the JSPS, which is uh, their equivalent of answer. And I joined through their uh, foreign GSPS foreign postdoc program. Okay, so that's advice for people who are thinking of going abroad and need a path in. But then let's say someone knows they're going abroad. Do you have advice for them then? Main thing, honestly, is to, I don't say, have fun. <laughs> uh, and the one thing to calm your nerves that uh, like people are still people, that your cultural background might be different, your upbringing is different, your life experience may be different, but uh, people are still people. And I find, especially in academia, like I find people are more alike than, uh, than we realize. And uh, that's, uh, for me, that has been a big comforting thing to realize because when I come here, even though Japan is quite different culturally, and as well as in terms of uh, administration, but uh, when it comes to research, uh, yeah, you, you can be often be on the same page with your supervisor. And then so you can focus on your uh, research. And then I think that's going to be true in vast majority part of the world. Yeah. yeah. So one of the other advice for international uh, going abroad is that I, I do highly recommend it is to broaden your horizon. Because uh, even though you could go to conferences, but uh, uh, there's always a lot of the more local uh, meetings as well. Mm. And also to exchange ideas with uh, the uh, different labs. So I really, and also you can then see the uh, experience of difference in uh, how yeah, the system, the, the research framework, the educational framework, that's set up, and the pros and cons to it. I think that's been uh, very eye-opening. I really enjoyed my experience. Every lab, every university department, every region has different paradigms about its science. Uh, and given that you've studied multiple countries, multiple departments, you've done research in different fields like math versus biology. Uh, do you have any lessons from the work cultures that you've, you've experienced? There's definitely uh, things from different systems like the different pros and cons. So for example, uh, labs in Japan tends to be bigger and uh, you actually have almost uh, tenured uh, research associates. And then, uh, so you can have, uh, you can devote a greater amount of your time to research. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks for introducing us to bioinformatics and the fungi. Well, thanks for having me. Listen to more episodes of Beyond the Test Tube every 15th of every month, either on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, or visit our website on Simplecast Beyond the Test Tube.